You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 80 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. And a big thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. This is the first episode sponsored by Class, and I really appreciate it because it means supporting you by supporting the show. In 2016, there were well over 800,000 trusts in Australia with a total of assets over 3 trillion Australian dollars. So well over 800,000 trusts in 2016, probably closer to a million by now. Compare that to the 24 million people living in Australia at the moment, and it is obvious we like using trusts. But what is a trust? What makes a trust? What is a unit trust? What is a discretionary trust? Why would you set one up over the other? I went to see Paul McEnroe of Cleary Hall in Brisbane to find an answer, and he kindly agreed to walk you through the elements of a trust. Here's Paul. I think oftentimes we talk about a trust as if it is an entity or a legal person, so to speak. And I think the first step is understanding that it isn't a separate legal identity, albeit that in the tax laws, it is what's called an entity under the tax laws. There can be some confusing aspects there where we generally talk about a trust as if it is a separate legal entity. In the tax laws, there's a term, a defined term called entity. And an entity includes person, company, but also the concept of trust and partnership. And notwithstanding that they're not legal entities in themselves, being the trust and a partnership in and of itself is not really a separate legal entity. It's the partners are the legal entities. But that's where the confusion often comes in is that in the tax world, we talk about them as if they're a living entity. For the general law, they're not. So what a trust really is, is a relationship. And it's a relationship between the trustee who holds the the legal title and the beneficiaries, and there might be one or, or more than one. And it's the relationship that binds the trustees, the beneficiaries, and the trust property together. That is the term known as trust. And there's always just one trustee? No, there can be, in most of the states around Australia, they have a similar Trusts Act, which says there can be up to four trustees. Oh, yes, of course. You can have individual trustees. Yeah, I'm from Queensland, so that's the easiest law for me to know is that in Queensland, you can have a maximum of four individual trustees or four corporate trustees, if, if that's what you wanted, in relation to that trust property. Yeah, so even though the tax law always talks of the trustee, yep. it could be several trustees. Correct. Yeah, that's right. What binds, I guess, those three elements, and, and they're often called the three certainties, so the trustee, the trust property, and the beneficiaries, is that fiduciary relationship that exists between those three elements. So, And if one of the three elements is missing, then there's a problem that's potentially no longer a trust. That's right. If, for example, the trustee disposes of all of the trust property and there is no longer any trust property, well, there's no longer a trust. That's one way to bring to an end a trust is to dispose of all of the property that the trustee holds on trust uh, for those beneficiaries. 
I see. So there wouldn't even need to be an official resolution that the trust comes to an end. Just selling everything would put the but trust to an end. Selling everything and then, I guess, distributing the proceeds. In a tax sense, you'd have to distribute at the end of the year. If by doing all of that, all of the trust property is distributed and the trustee no longer holds any property, well, then the trust comes to an end. Now, ordinarily, you would do a set of documents that might document the, the bringing to the to an end of that trust, if that was your plan. But in theory, if there is no trust property anymore, then uh, one of those elements of a trust has gone and will bring about the end of that trust. Now, I guess a va vacating of a trustee is a little bit different because a trustee may, for example, die. The trustee position becomes vacant, but that wouldn't bring to an end the trust. There would, albeit that there is no trustee, there's laws in the states which would put the public trustee in Queensland, for example, takes over the role of trustee until a new trustee is appointed according to the trust deed. It doesn't necessarily bring to an end a trust or a vacation of one of those elements, but certainly if you don't have any trust property anymore, there is no trust. So it's not the end of the word if the only trustee dies. Correct. Then something can be done about it. That's right. And usually modern trustees now have provision for the handover of control, whether that be to the legal personal representative of the sole surviving individual, or it may empower another person to take on the role of principal, which the principal's role or appointer they're sometimes called that role is to appoint a new trustee. So if the trustee position was vacated because the trustee passed away, then that role may be held by a person who is not the trustee or it may pass to a new person who takes on the role of principal and they might appoint themselves or someone else to be a new trustee. So, yeah, there'll be a short window where there is no trustee. In that time, and I'm doing a case at the moment in Brisbane where that happened, the sole trustee passed away. So in that short period between the appointment of a new trustee, the public trustee at law takes over the role. And it's a simple notification to them to say the appointer has appointed a new trustee and you no longer have any role. Now, in practice, they didn't know they had a role to start off with, but that's the process. So what happens if the only beneficiary passes away? I guess it depends on the terms of the trust deed, but certainly if it were a fixed trust, for example, or ordinarily in a fixed trust, the fixed beneficiary has a proprietary interest in that trust. And that fixed interest would pass to their estate as part of their ordinary will process, and there would be a new beneficiary of that trust. If it were a discretionary trust that were limited, the beneficiary scope was limited to a defined family and all of those beneficiaries then passed away, then obviously it does call into question the, you know, whether that trust can continue. It's likely that it can't because there are no longer any beneficiaries. Now, I haven't seen one that defined because generally the scope of beneficiaries is quite broad that may include cousins and the like. You may be able to identify a beneficiary so that trust could continue. Beneficiaries of discretionary trusts don't have a propriety interest in the trust assets. Only beneficiaries of a fixed trust have a propriety interest. Yeah, that's correct. And that, and that 
is the value of a discretionary trust for asset protection purposes. So because a discretionary beneficiary has no proprietary interest in any of the assets of the trust, if that beneficiary is sued, then they don't have an interest in those assets and those assets are shielded in a way from that lawsuit. Apart from family law? Yeah, the family law has has broader powers and there's been a number of cases through the years which have extended that power to allow the family court to be more interventionist inside a trust and those traditional aspects of asset protection have been eroded in a family law context. That's not to say all situations the family law court will say, well, those trust assets are an asset of the marriage or asset of the relationship, but the family court certainly has broader powers than other courts. Unsecured uh, creditors, I guess. Correct. Secured creditors have a stronger... Correct. In the context of asset protection and trust, we're really talking about the beneficiary coming under attack. So if the trustee provide, uh, enters into contracts with third parties, well, those assets are at risk if the trustee defaults on those contracts. That's ordinary. But what we're talking about from an asset protection perspective is the beneficiary, if the beneficiary is sued, then there is a, a break between the trust assets and the beneficiary's assets. So in that way, if the beneficiary comes under attack, provided there's no unpaid entitlements from the trust, then those trust assets will be shielded from an attack on the beneficiary. In the family law context, and we, we get this question a lot, is people going through rocky patches in their relationships and they come to the party late saying, oh, I want to protect my assets. And often it's, I want to protect my assets in case I get divorced. And, and the short answer generally is there's not a lot you can do. You've built this trust together as a family. That's the way the family court will generally look at that trust. It's near impossible now to say, well, just because it's in a trust, it means that you can protect that from a divorce in that setting. You mentioned the creditors before who have access to the trustee. Yep. There is no protection. If it's a trading trust and the trustee enters a contract and has a liability, then the creditors have, have access to the trust just as if it was a company. Yeah, that's right. I guess, again, we've kind of gone down that same road of talking of this trust as an entity. So it's really that if the trustee can be an individual or a company, if the trustee enters into a contract or borrows money from the bank, if we take that example, and the bank says, well, I'll lend you money, but I want security over your property, If the trustee defaults on its loan repayments, well, the bank has access to that. The, the fact that it's, you know, it holds that property on trust doesn't mean anything in that context. The bank has security over the property and can get full access to that if it pursues the, the trustee and needs to enforce its rights under the mortgage. So there's, there's no protection in that context. The protection really is, like I said, it's, it's about protecting from an attack on the beneficiaries in that capacity, not on the trustee. So the difference between a secured creditor and unsecured is really a priority dispute between all of the creditors. So if there are one or more secured creditors, they get paid what they're owed. If the company, for example, were put into liquidation, And a liquidator came in and worked out, well, this is how much money we've got. Well, the secured creditors get paid in order of 
their registration. So if, if I'm registered as the first mortgagee on title, well, I get paid first what I'm owed. And then the second secured creditor gets paid whatever might be left. Then if there's money left over, that money gets distributed amongst the unsecured creditors. So it's really the difference between secured and unsecured is more a priority dispute between those creditors. In these disputes, are the assets seen as the trustee's assets or as the trust assets? Because the trustee is the legal owner of the trust assets. That's right. The trustee is the legal owner of the asset and the trustee is the one who is sued, albeit it may be in its capacity as trustee. I see. So in the relationship between trustee and creditors, it's basically just between trustee and creditors that that's there is a trust attached to the trustee. That's right. It doesn't right. really matter. No, that's right. And I think that's where we started was saying, well, the trustee is, is the owner of the asset, using that broad term. The trustee is the owner of the asset. It can enter into contracts as the owner. It's just got fiduciary obligations to those beneficiaries. Now, that those fiduciary obligations don't mean a lot to a creditor. A creditor says, well, you entered into this contract with me and you haven't paid me, so I'm going to enforce my rights against you, that the company or the individual trustee. Yeah, it has to be this way because otherwise nobody would do business with a trustee. That's right. Yeah, and that's right. It really just comes back to that concept that a trust is not a, a separate legal entity. It is merely that relationship between the trustee, the property, and the beneficiaries. So when dealing with the outside world, it is purely the trustee, whether it be a company or an individual, that enters into the contract. We often see contracts come across our desk that all have particularly property contracts where the agent and the client do all of the dealings and suddenly a contract lands on your desk. And it says the trust board, the property. It, correct. And you say, well... That's you not quite right. We need to go back and we need to fix it to say, well, who's the trustee? Yes, you might want to say as trustee, that's okay. But we need to put the company or the individual name on that contract because that's the party who's entering into the contract. And I think it is that mix of the tax world and the general world. In the broader community, we do talk about trust as if they're this separate thing to a company or an individual and it's only the trust lawyers who bang on about the fact that no you need, it's the trustee who's going on the contract and i think it's also important to now understand that the creditors go for the trustee or the family law goes for the beneficiaries i guess what the family law courts are trying to do is they're trying to assess firstly what are the assets of this relationship and Oftentimes, whether it's an individual trustee or a company, those people may be the same as the parties to the relationship. So it's about determining, well, those assets that are held on trust, are those assets to be included in the assets of this relationship? That's generally the first step in that process of saying, well, what assets are the assets to be divided up at the end of the proceeding? So that's kind of that first step and the court will look at and say, well, these assets are held on trust, but is that trust, are those trust assets to be included in the assets of this relationship to be divided? And I always use the scenario with my clients, my wife and I have a trust. 
it's going to be near impossible for me to say that those trust assets are not part of our relationship assets because we were together when we established it. We're both beneficiaries. We're both principals. At the end of the day, those assets will will be included in the assets of our relationship. So the clients who want to try to separate trust assets from their relationship pool assets, it's nearly impossible to do that in those contexts. A discretionary trust doesn't really have a really neat definition. There's no one definition, but there's certain characteristics that go with them. They're often called family trusts, and you'll see that term used even in the name of the trust. And what they're used to describe is a trust where the trustees often have a complete discretion as to how they distribute the income or capital of the trust fund. Hence the name. Yeah, discretionary trust. That's obviously used to describe that the trustee has a very wide discretion to distribute the income or capital and or capital of the trust. And generally that will be amongst a wide array of beneficiaries. Now, modern trustees generally have a couple of one or two or three named persons and then categories of beneficiaries that that branch off those named people. For example... If I were the principal or primary beneficiary, the branches might be my siblings, my spouse, my children, my grandchildren, great-grandchildren, for example, and that is how the beneficiary list is defined. But I need to make an official family trust election for the discretionary trust to become a family trust. So a family trust election is designed so that you can access certain benefits under the tax laws. Now, not every trust needs a family trust election. And to be honest, more care is probably required around whether to access a family trust election or not. A family trust election is important for trusts that own shares, for example. So if if we own shares in a discretionary trust and BHP shares, well, If we want to access the franking credits that flow through from any dividends on those shares, then we need to have made a family trust election. Because otherwise we don't qualify for the, um, I think it's a 45-day rule. Correct. So there's a rule that says you have to have your shares at risk for at least 45 days in order to allow the franking credits to come through. But the difficulty there is identifying, well, who has it at risk? Because... The laws are looking for a person who's had them at risk. Because of that discretion element, they don't look at the trustee, they look at the the beneficiaries. So what a family trust election is designed to do is to identify that individual who we say is the designated individual. Therefore, any frank distributions that flow through that trust have to go to either that designated individual or someone within their family group. So it's really about tests behind allowing franking credits to flow through the trust to individuals. There's some loss rules as well as to when you can access trust losses. Yes, because for a family trust, you only have to do the income injection test. Correct. And you don't have to do all the other three tests. Yeah, that's right. So it, it makes it a little bit easier. If those are things you want to access, then I would say that's the point in time you should make a family trust election rather than... I guess, doing a blanket family trust election every time you set up a family trust. I see. So a family trust election is a pure 
action undertaken for tax purposes, sure. but you could have a family trust that hasn't made a family trust election that just basically says in its deed, our beneficiaries is our family. That's right. Again, that's the, the two terms, the outside the tax world term of family trust, meaning a trust that is for our family because that's the range of beneficiaries, and then a family trust for tax purposes, which means that you've uh, elected to have a family trust election. So the mix of those two worlds, again, it doesn't mean you have to do a family trust election, and I would say that you should do them only if the circumstances warrant it. And the reason I say that is because if a family trust election has been entered, the rules for varying that family trust election are really strict. And certainly the rules for revoking them are, are really strict. And if the circumstances warranted it, that control of the family trust were to be passed to someone outside the family group of the family trust election, that can be near on impossible to do that. So, for example, if you wanted to pass control to someone not in the family group for the family trust election, that wouldn't be possible to flow franking credits through that trust. So it's easy to make a family trust election further down the track. You don't have to make that election right when you set up the trust. That's right. But once you've made the family trust election for tax purposes, it's very. it then is quite a clamp around the trust of what you can do with respect to the range of beneficiaries. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's why you should make it on the basis of I need to make a family trust election, not just making it because... Everybody else does That's that. right. Um, make it if the circumstances warranted. There's this term called a primary beneficiary, and then I think secondary, or there's another word for it. Tertiary as yeah. well. Oh, okay. Is that the tax word or is that the legal word? Pretty much the, the way the trust deeds have evolved over time, we identify this category of primary beneficiary, and really there's no actual reason for it more than convenience, I would have thought. You could have one category of beneficiary in your trustee and just have primary beneficiaries and every beneficiary is in that category. I think it's evolved over time more as a drafting exercise that we break them into, well, these are our primary beneficiaries, these are our secondary, just to uh, perhaps the secondary beneficiaries might be, rather than immediate family, it might be extended family and then tertiary is often other trusts and companies and the like. I see. And could it also be that primary beneficiaries are the now living members of the family and then secondary or tertiary beneficiaries could be the descendants of our children or the descendants of our grandchildren when they are born? Yeah, look, it really can be anything. It's really up to the drafter. There are some trustees, for example, that have default beneficiaries. Now, they might put the default beneficiaries in a separate category. They might be the primary beneficiaries and the secondary are all of the related parties from there, or we have what's called a bloodline trust, which distinguishes between primary beneficiaries. The trustee has discretion to give them income and capital, but secondary and tertiary beneficiaries have no access to capital of the fund. They can only be distributed income of the fund. And in that way, it, it protects the capital of the fund for purely bloodline beneficiaries and it's often used in a testamentary trust setting because family members mum and dad who have built a large pool of assets want to make sure that they're protected for their kids grandkids and great-grandkids and they want that added protection that the capital will never go 
to someone who's not part of their bloodline. So that's another reason why you might distinguish between the categories. But again, it's purely a drafting exercise than having any legal reason behind it. But you always need at least one beneficiary who's entitled to the capital. You couldn't just leave capital out and only give income only have income beneficiaries. Yes, I think that's right. I think there would have to be at some point a beneficiary that be entitled to capital. Otherwise, the capital. Otherwise the capital is basically lost. Lo lo yeah, that, that's it. right. Yeah. One of the rules that comes from the history of trusts is of the rule against perpetuities. And it's, like I said, it's a centuries-old rule and it comes from a public policy that the assets of the trust should not be locked up in perpetuity, which means forever. In older deeds, you'll see that the trust will vest when... The descendant of the living descendant of King Henry IV yeah, or something. That's right. So you'll you'll see that concept. A lot of trustees, modern trustees, have gone away from that and, and adopted the legislative approach of 80 years. But that old terminology is still around in some of the older deeds, particularly the ones that were in place when the Trust Act in, in the States weren't enacted and didn't have that 80-year rule. So, in, in the States, do you mean the Australian States? Correct, sorry, yes, not the United, uh, yeah, in, in the Australian States. And the old rule against perpetuity, or the rule against perpetuity, had that if you couldn't identify the beneficiaries who would be living in existence at the end of the trust then the trust was void from the creation. So it was kind of this, you had to identify who were going to be then living and alive and make sure that they would be alive at the, the end of the trust or else it would create a trust that was void from the beginning. Oh, seriously, so under the old law, you had to identify who will be living in 80 years to be entitled to yeah. the trust capital. That's right. So it's almost a list it approach. It everything. That's very risky because you could have a car accident and the whole family perishes yeah. and suddenly the whole trust is, has been void since, in, since inception. Yeah, I don't know what the consequence of that would have been or what would the taxing consequence of that be. We now have what's called the wait and see rule. So we wait until the end and see if we've got okay. beneficiaries. So we don't so need to worry about this. We don't need to worry about it. But the statutory period now is 80 years from, from the start. Except in South Australia. Correct. So South Australia is the first state in Australia to adopt no end date for the perpetuity period for trusts. And do you think the other states and territories would follow? Potentially. I, I don't know. Certainly there's nothing that I've heard of that suggests that anyone's really thinking about it. It may be that other states adopt it down the road, but there's certainly no one clamouring for it at the moment. And how come South Australia? I don't know, to be it? honest. Yeah, I don't know the reasoning behind it. There will be trusts out there that live for that long. I've, I've not experienced many of them. I've ex had the experience of having to deal with vesting dates that are coming to an end that were below the 80-year period that perhaps one from memory had a 24-year period because that's presumably how long the original client wanted the trust to last. But I haven't experienced yet that anyone getting close to the 80-year period. So, so it's more a theoretical discussion. At the moment, certainly. Mm. But it, it might become it more relevant may. as we all get older and older. Yeah. I think a lot of those cases are going to be where you might buy assets 
in a trust or, or it passes to a testamentary trust and the assets are large land parcels that are not easy to sell, so they remain in that trust for the long term. Those are the types of assets I would have thought that if we move them from one trust to an individual and then that individual settles them, well, there'll be large tax consequences of doing those sorts of things to kind of move it from one trust to another. When the trust vests, yep. does that incur stamp duty? No. So in certainly in Queensland, stamp duty or dutiable event will be where there is a transfer. So unless under the terms of the, the deed... Oh, I see. So as long as the trustee continues to be the legal owner, then nothing, nothing changes. That's right. It's only when the legal owner now sells it. Yeah, so there are some other provisions, certainly in Queensland and other states, that have the creation of a new trust is a dutiable event, for example. So it'll be a transfer that's dutiable or the creation of a new trust. Now, vesting of a trust in and of itself doesn't meet the requirements of either of those. So until something more positive happens, there won't be a dutiable event. The same can be said for CGT, for example. Unless there's some capital gains tax event that occurs in relation to how the terms of the deed are structured, there won't be a capital gains tax event. That's very important. So if the trust vests, there's no capital gain gains event. There's no event. It is really determined by what the terms of your deed say. So ordinarily, in most circumstances, trust will vest. So for trust law purposes, the trust will come to an end. And unless there is either a transfer of the asset to a beneficiary because the, the trustee has determined to distribute the capital, that would be an ordinary A1 event, so a disposal to a beneficiary. Or even perhaps before that, if the terms of the trustee said that the capital beneficiary or named person becomes absolutely entitled to the trust asset as against the trustee, then that would be an E5 event. In those circumstances, well, there would be a CGT event. But that doesn't happen just because the trust comes to an end or the trust vests. It happens because of what the trustee then... Yes, that's right. So the Commissioner released a taxation ruling TR 2018-6 earlier this year, which covers a trust vesting and the circumstances in which a CGT event will occur. And the Commissioner recognises that trust vesting doesn't automatically in all circumstances cause a CGT event. What the Commissioner does say in that ruling is that upon vesting, a default beneficiary becomes absolutely entitled to the asset as against the trustee. Now, the Commissioner hasn't addressed a number of cases in the main case of Oswald, Oswald's case, Oswald against the Federal Commissioner of Taxation, which says that a trustee has a right of indemnity against the trust assets and therefore a lien against the trust assets, which is not completed until the asset is passed to the beneficiary. And that lien over the trust assets stops the beneficiary being absolutely entitled to the trust assets. So while the commissioner has tried to say that in, those, in the circumstances of a trust vesting, a beneficiary may be absolutely entitled, I don't think it's as clear as the commissioner has put forward. He hasn't addressed 
that absolute entitlement, which is a necessary aspect, certainly for CDT event E5. So I think principally you've got to read the deed and, and in trust law circles, that's a mantra, read the deed because not all of them are the same and it will depend on what the terms of that particular deed say as to whether a CGT event will occur. Welcome back. So this was the first introduction into trusts. We will make a detour, but then come back to trusts from episode 89 onwards. In the next episode, episode 81, Jeff Zulman of Trailblazer Finance will talk about financing business growth. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for supporting us all. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.